Well, welcome everyone. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSC. And as, as many of you will know, the Miliband program exists to provide a space for sort of heterodox debate, especially about progressive issues. And our, our theme this term is actually progress and its discontents. And um, I think it's clear that the idea of utopia has long played a central role, one of the central roles anyway, in the progressive imagination. And so our contribution to the LSE's Literary Festival this year has been to bring together this eminent group of writers who have been thinking deeply about this theme and in all cases have recent written work in which they've set their ideas out in, in a systematic form in one mode of writing or another. So let me just uh, quickly introduce our speakers to you. Uh, um, we're going to deal with the topics of their writing in chronological order. So we're going to start with uh, Michael Keynes. Um, he has written and edited books about theatre and the 18th century, including a, a, book, a recent book about Shakespeare in the 18th century by Oxford University Press. And he's most recently turned his attention to thinking about Thomas More's Utopia, whose 500th anniversary is, of course, the occasion for the festival theme this year. He's also the assistant editor of the... TLS, the Times Literary Supplement, with responsibility for questions of English literature, and that's a publication to which he's a, a very regular contributor. Um, our second speaker, again going chronologically, is Jacqueline uh, Yallop. She's written three novels and two works of, well, history or historical non-fiction, uh, um, interesting history, we should say. Um, including her most recent book, Dream Streets, A Journey Through Britain's Village Utopias. Um, and she's worked in a number of capacities as a museum creator, as a, a mentor to other writers, and she also teaches creative writing at the University of Aberystwyth. And then our last speaker is Benjamin Markovitz. He's written seven novels, including his latest, You Don't Have to Live Like This, um, and he's uh, written essays for the New York Times, for the London Review of Books, Granata, and other places. And uh, he, I believe, worked as a professional basketball player at one point, which sort of stands to reason. Um, he, he, he too teaches creative writing, in his case, at Royal Holloway in London. So what's going to happen is we've got about 15 minutes for each of our speakers and then we'll have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. So can I just begin by asking you to join me in welcoming all our speakers to the London School of Economics. <laughs> so we're just going to deal serially with that. Sure. Good evening. <clears throat> if you hadn't been told that Benjamin Markovitz was the basketball player, you would have thought it was me, right? <laughs> Can. Just shout if you can't hear me at the back. Um, I'm actually going to, we're, we're running kind of chronologically here. I'm going to talk a little bit about Thomas More's Utopia first. But uh, just to begin by saying, if you're really interested in the subject of utopias, here's, here's a trilogy of really good recent books you can read to find out about the subject uh, in its modern incarnations. You can definitely read Jacqueline Allop's Dream Street, a fantastic book. Um, I've got here a copy of Tobias Young's book, Utopian Dreams, in which he goes around Italy and England looking for ideal communities or idealistic communities. And there's also Dylan Jones's book, um, The Utopia Experiment, in which he goes to the Scottish Highlands and attempts to 
live in a, in a small community of his own devising, team of volunteers, um, imagining what it would be like if you had to fend for yourself when the whole of Western civilization has collapsed and you're just um, thrown back on your own resources. Well, they managed to build themselves some yurts, and then the moment somebody sort of cuts the hand or something, they have to go to hospital. Um, it's a really funny and interesting book, and it's also about his own, his own kind of um, personal issues, shall we say. Um, let me read a bit about Moore's Utopia and then we'll come back to the present. This is just some ideas about the questions, the questions we've been asked to address, which is why, why is the idea of utopia attractive and um, why did they fail? Moore's Utopia was published at Leuven in Belgium in 1516. It's been pieced together over the previous couple of years. Moore started at the end, really. He started with book two out of two books. And it's there that he describes the island of Utopia, or rather, his mouthpiece Raphael Hithloday describes Utopia. Book one offers us a mirror image of book two, in which Moore himself is introduced, he's in Antwerp on a diplomatic mission, or taking a break from a diplomatic mission, he's introduced to Hithloday through his friend and fellow intellectual, humanist intellectual Peter Giles, and Hithloday proceeds to condemn the bad old world of Christendom. He can only then go on to describe how much better things are in this place he has been to called Utopia. No other European has been there. Um, but, of course, the whole book is written in Latin, won't be translated into English until after Moore's death. And Moore's Latinate readers, his fellow humanist scholars, would have been expected to appreciate, definitely to get, the puns embedded in, in the work, starting with Hithloday's name. He's effectively a speaker of nonsense, or maybe more generously, one who heals through nonsense. So we're to take his testimony, perhaps, as being suspect. The title of Utopia, the word itself, was itself a kind of pun, a kind of jesting challenge. Utopia means, in Greek, no place. But others might call it a utopia, E-U to us, a good place, as in euphony. And amid much debate over the years about what more meant by his utopia, the scholarly consensus since sort of the mid-20th century seems to be that Moore put his talent for wordplay at the service of a serious point, that his utopia is uh, a satire and a thought experiment, not a manifesto, but a pointed account of a world in which reason rules without Christianity. It is, that said, reason that points firmly in the direction of Christianity. This isn't just rationality as we might necessarily get it or a secularist might get it this is Moore's rationality utopians certainly believe there is a god and that there is an afterlife it is when Hithloday arrives um, that they start to see the light the Christian light and it is the precondition of their rational openness to revealed religion that enables them to improve yet further the joke <coughs> is on Moore's fellow Christians in Europe many of whom are by contrast far worse people than these enlightened heathens so the satire is on the Europeans, on London, on England, on people that this network of humanist scholars would have known quite well. As it stands, even before Hithloday interferes, life in Utopia is pretty harmonious, partly because it is so damn uniform. The cities are identical. So, he says, Hithloday says, once you've seen one, you've seen them all. Not usually a recommendation you'll find in the tourist guide. And pretty much everybody, even the grandees who aren't obliged to join in, contributes to the agricultural life of the Commonwealth. Those grandees are themselves elected annually uh, by secret ballot, <coughs> and there is a prince who is elected and is elected for life. The utopians eat communally, they despise gold and silver, using it for chamber pots and children's trinkets, and they wear much the same clothes without adornment. Marriage is sacrosanct, but divorce is permitted, very uncatholic this, very unreal Thomas More, um, divorce is permitted in cases of adultery or unreasonable behaviour. 
Virtue, the utopians define as living according to nature, quite a slippery idea, and they see no reason not to embrace virtuous rather than false pleasures. Loving gold would be an example of a false pleasure and getting drunk. There's no public houses in utopia because every house is essentially public. There's no locks on any doors. I've become interested in, in, in what that uh, version of hedonism means in relation to Moore himself. He wore a hair shirt. And in particular, his idea of um, euthanasia. I gave a talk at UCL um, the other week, and I had to call it Et in Utopia Ego, even in Utopia I Am Here. Incurable diseases mean no pleasure is possible, and the usefulness of the individual to society as a whole comes into the reckoning. When a person is terminally ill in Utopia, they are rather sinisterly visited by the priests and officials who urge them to kill themselves so they don't become a drain on resources. But they're not forced to kill themselves, only advised to. If somebody commits suicide without authorization, however, they're thrown in a ditch, or as one vivid translation has it, a stinking marsh. Uh, One more thing about war. Utopia is, as the name suggests, nowhere to be found on the globe of the time. But that didn't stop some people, who weren't in on the joke, trying to locate it. And there's... Certainly, what we can certainly say about it is it's in a very favourable climate, south of the equator, far from those benighted Europeans between, I think, Ceylon and and Calcutta, I think uh, Hitler today says quite early on in the book. And it's an island that its founder, Utopus, deliberately creates. He cuts off this peninsula from the mainland, creating a 15-mile channel between his new world and the neighbouring continent. With Moore's imagined community in mind, perhaps we can see some of the ways in which later utopian communities were to become attractive and were doomed to failure. I should have produced for this 500th anniversary year of Utopia a kind of set of Utopia top trumps or something in which the categories would have been essentially all derived from Moore's book. Now imagine it as a questionnaire, a questionnaire rather than a card game though. What's your Utopia called? What are its physical limits? Does it have a future? Don't just say it's going to last in perpetuity perennial, unrealistic aim of any utopian. What are its material advantages? How's your luck holding up? And perhaps most fundamentally, who lives there? For Moore's utopians are inherently good folk, monastically community-minded in many ways, innately virtuous and pious by temperament, virtually boy and girl scouts who don't even question the need to do a good deed every day and do it for the good of the whole society. There are bad apples, this is true, but there's a whole system for dealing with them. Contrast that with a utopian mishap from a much later time. Um, the ill-fated Owenite community of Orbiston, near Motherwell in Scotland. Last day, this is quite typical for um, Owenite, uh, sort of, I'll tell you who Robert Owen is in a moment. There are communities of that, of that time. Lasting for only a few years in the mid-1820s, Orbiston had high hopes to establish a working cooperative inspired by the ideas of the philanthropist and industrialist, an easy combination perhaps, Robert Owen. Funds were raised, lands were bought, all arable and of excellent quality, according to a contemporary report, in all about 290 acres. The visionary founders, principal among them the son of a brewer uh, called Abram Combe and a disillusioned military man called Archibald Hamilton, who'd been at Waterloo, They had plans to educate the children who would arrive with their families and have all the community eat and work together um, in a community dining hall, a bit like in Moore's Utopian Cities, um, along lines that Raphael Hitzlerday would have found quite familiar. The problems started when the workforce turned up. A voluntary crowd drawn by the promise of this new land, initially including a number of handloom weavers but no other skilled artisans, and there, there, there were various craftsmen who turned up who prided themselves on their work and refused to share their skills with others. 
So they didn't really get it. Attempts were made to bring them round. There were factions and desertions. And within a few years, it was all over. Coombe was dead. He'd done most of the legwork. And the shareholders never recouped their losses and declared the whole thing bankrupt. I think in that um, instance, which I think is uh, quite a good example of the kind of 19th century utopia that was set up in many places, particularly in, 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 in the States. Um, Robert Owen himself had an idea for a place called New Harmony, which went horribly wrong. And these things, they're kind of farcical. There's a settlement there already. Owen concocts a great deal of, um, concocts a great plan for taking it over and laying out schemes that he's already devised, uh, used to some extent in his cotton mill um, of New Lanark. Um, spends, I think, about four-fifths of his wealth in trying to get this thing to work and is essentially kicked out and asked to cut his losses. Um, Owen's a very interesting figure. I think we might hear more about him from Jacqueline because he was an industrialist who, who seems to have gone on a very interesting intellectual journey, gone through socialism, ended up a kind of um, spiritualist, really, in his final years. But his ideas were very um, influential, and people tried to set up interesting communes along those lines, many of which didn't last very long. But New Lanark is, is I think, probably the principal exception since it, it continued to work as a cotton mill long after his death, into the 20th century even. Um, and that said... Would you want to live there? It's one family to a room. So there's many admirable things about Robert Owen and about New Lanark and about his ideas about education, community, um, supporting the workers. But, of course, it's all tied to capital. It's all the idea that better fed, better looked after workers lead to a better industry, more successful industry, happier shareholders. It's all pretty dubious, I think. Um, but he's an interesting figure for that reason. I'm going to skip forward... Uh, to talk about something much more recent, which is from Tobias Jones's um, Utopian Dreams. Um, he goes to a place in Italy, it's about halfway between Florence and Rome, called Nomadelfia, and when he arrives he's told, not in Paradiso, and here's a couple of things that he observes about it. First, there is no private property, familiar idea, I think, from what I've just said. No money circulates within the community. There are no isolated family units. There are 11 groups uh, instead, called Diacaloni and Sugera and so on, each with about 30 people, from newborns to nonagenarians, who all live and eat together. Again, the idea of a community, it's a through line here from more, I think, to a monastic community, essentially, in present-day Italy. Only the sleeping quarters with Spartan bathrooms are separate. He goes on to say, if I can find it, the central aim of Nomadelfia remains that of brotherhood. Its aim is to give a home to orphans, and problematic children. Since its foundation, it has taken in about 5,000 children. It's founded in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, I think. It's one of the most noticeable aspects of the place. Everywhere you go, you can hear children playing and laughing. There are kids all over the place with the entire gamut of mental and physical capabilities. The community is, in fact, the perfect size for them, coming back to the question of how big is this utopian community you're setting up? Certainly large enough to get lost in, good for children, but small enough to feel safe. And it's the children who start helping you understand how this place, although it looks so normal, is actually extraordinarily different. And he goes on um, praising it, discovering things he really likes about it. Labour is particularly important because he's a writer, of course, he sits uh, like me at his desk all day, and this is great for him to actually get out and, and chop wood and that kind of thing. But then what he discovers is um, its fundamental flaw. Um, after a month or so, his wife comes over, and they leave, and uh, he says about that. Unfortunately, it's part of living in community that before you can realistically assess it, you go from extraordinary enchantments to mournful disenchantment, flip from one to the other. We had been at Nomadelfia for a few weeks when we both began to feel uncomfortable. I'd begun to feel restless on reading a particular passage from one of the founder's many books. 
Homogeneity is the first condition for serenely sharing in harmony and for working together to the exclusion of any discord which could arise because of the disparity of ideas. Uh, what an absolutely thrillingly horrible final idea. The reference to homogeneity, this is Tobias Jones still, unsettled me. It stuck in my brain like a fishhook because it somehow seemed a long way from my notion of brotherhood. It wanted uniformity, not alterity. It reminded me of the old Roman idea of the limes, the wall which separated the civilised world from the barbarians. I began to overhear the ways in which parents admonished their children. Non fare lismachimo, they would say. Um, and he, uh, he obviously leaves uh, Nomadelphia impressed but disillusioned about it. And one of the final um, places in the book where I think he feels most settled is a place in Dorset called, Pils- called Pilsden, which is also essentially a kind of... Um, retreat from the world, a lot of people who are damaged in various ways, recovering from addiction, um, unable to cope in, in a, a horrible um, real world, as it were, um, end up there. But it's a fluctuating community, entirely unlike um, Nomadelphia, in the sense that it might be 15 to 30 people. They, they come and go. Some people, there's a kind of diaspora of people who take the principles and establish communities elsewhere. And you realise the whole world is covered with places essentially founded on the same principle. So... The nearest thing to, I think, a, I suppose, a working, surviving utopian here is actually constantly in flux, both the founding community itself and the idea that it's a, it's a kind of, rather than being a single settled place with a set of rules and high walls, it's really a method. It's a method for living. Um, I've finished by contrasting that um, hopeful, striving, small-scale idea of utopia, which seems to me does work and, and does seem to be quite an attractive idea, with a negative sense which you can find in, in David Graeber's recent book, a uh, book which I think is hugely um, enjoyable, thought-provoking, lots of dis- disagree within it, called The Utopia of Rules, um, uh, where you, when he uses the word utopia, the title aside, it's really associated with um, unrealisable dreams, impossibly high standards, um, it's, he quotes, the, you know, Marx is very against the idea of utopia. He was absolutely withering about utopia and socialism as such, wanted to separate himself from that idea. And it's, a, it's an odd thing in, in Graves' book where utopians both got an element of pipe dreams. It's both fantasy, it's impossible sort of demands that we might place on ourselves to become the kind of impossible people who live in Moore's utopia. And it's also sinisterly real because it can be linked to bureaucracy, that benights the way we live our lives every day, at least according to his idea. Okay, thank you very much. So, we proceed on to check on Yellow. Okay, so in my, in my short period of time, I'm actually going to talk only about one of the villages that appears in the book. I'm going to disappoint Michael and not touch Robert Owen today. Um, I'm going to talk about another industrialist um, and another village, and I'm going to show you one or two pictures to help. (laughs) Okay, so some of you might know this. This is Port Sunlight in the Wirral. I'm just going to read very briefly to start with from the book, just to to set the scene of this. This is a bridge. The bridge is not very old. It was created in 1894 by the Cheshire architect John Douglas, who also designed several blocks of houses here and the Lyceum alongside. You can just see the the tower there is the Tower of of the Lyceum. It's only been in place a little over 100 years. 
And in the dell beneath, so the area is called the dell, uh, there's no idyllic bubbling brook or slumbering blue river, just a concrete path. The path meanders as though it might be water. From a distance, its flat greyness is deceptive. I half suspect there might actually be a stream here. But this is an illusion. It is a very ordinary path. Here on the bridge, as elsewhere in the village, there's a fairy tale element to what you see. You're asked to suspend disbelief, to enter into the spirit of the place, to look at the concrete path and see a stream. This is a village of ornament, turrets and towers, fancy metalwork, stone, ornate stonework, decorative drainpipes, impractical bridges. It rejoices in a flourish over a doorway or a flighty fan of roof tiles, anything to hold back the flat land beyond, industry stretching away along the banks of the Mersey, factories and refineries threatening to encroach on this calm, precise fantasy of rural life. And this is the second thing to notice about the bridge. At one end, it's firmly rooted in the village. There's a small, round stone bench built into the parapet from which you can look out over the attractive collection of architectural styles and wide lawns at this side of the community, the trees, the winding driveways. And actually, you can see there the cottages just beyond uh, the very end of the bridge. But a few steps away on the other side... Walking over the steep hump with my back to the church and the school, the library and the art gallery, there's a different world. On the other side of the bridge is this. And this is the factory wall. In fact, as you can see, it's not a particularly ugly wall. um, And... In fact, the the brick archways and the randalls are are in some ways rather pleasing. But the bridge marks the boundary between romance and pragmatism, between the dreamy serenity of the village and the brutal cut and thrust of Victorian capitalism. This was the bridge that took workers to their sweating, stinky, treacherous jobs, boiling, mixing and manipulating chemicals and oils. It detached them from one environment, the village, and joined them to the hundreds and thousands of other labourers in the northwest of England, struggling with the dirty, dehumanising and dangerous processes of British manufacturing. The bridge, spanning the pastoral promise of the Dell in Port Sunlight, yokes Victorian nostalgia, romanticism and idyll to the political, social and economic realities of early 20th century manufacturing. So that's my starting point today, just to give you a sense of perhaps some of the ideas underpinning the villages that that I was looking at, and this village, Port Sunlight in particular. Um, Port Sunlight was developed from around the 1890s by William Hesketh Lever, um, Lord Lever Hume, uh, eventually uh, the the huge Lever Brothers conglomerate, uh, a man who made soap, Port Sunlight, Sunlight soap, the name meant to evoke a beautiful place, a place of um, sea air and, and light and brilliance. He was a, a, he was a fantastic uh, 
marketing man. He knew the value of advertising. Uh, he absolutely bought into um, the whole idea around um, manipulating perception of his product and of perhaps things beyond. Uh, and the village can be seen as, as part of, obviously, his empire and as bringing together some of his ideas. And I, I'm just going to show you a, a few pictures because I think unless, you, unless you, you, you've been there, it's very hard to picture these things. So just one or two to give you a sense of what this place looks like. So the cottages are designed in a variety of styles and uh, Lever employed a great number of architects uh, specifically to make sure that, that the little clusters of buildings were different one from the other. It also, you could argue, meant that nobody other than he had any kind of control over the project. So none of the architects, and there were some very uh, well-known and uh, well-respected architects who were part of the project, None of them were able to, to get a foot in the door, as it were. They, they were each uh, allowed their little bit and then asked to move on. Um, and there's lots of very interesting architectural details. There are a lot of benches um, built often, as you can see, into the cottages, giving this sense of kind of ease. Um, this is a place to... No, this is not a place of work. This is a place where you sit out in the sunshine and you talk to your neighbours. Um, there's a lot of roundness to the architecture. There's a lot of curved paths. There's a lot of round windows and turrets. Soft lines. There's also, and this is true of particularly of the kind of later villages um, on, on, built along these lines, there's a lot of space. Uh, green space is important. Again, the sense that people should be outside. Uh, they, they should have a natural environment into which, in, in which they can enjoy themselves. Um, to some extent, this, this was taking elements of the arts and crafts movement and, and uh, their concern with sort of the, the back-to-nature um, element. But you, you'll see a lot of green spaces in Port Sunlight and, and in the other villages. And you get a sense here um, of the, the very different architectural styles side by side. And it was very much what, what Lever wanted to achieve, or what he said he wanted to achieve, was very much about community. Um, so, you know, along the lines of what, what was happening in, uh, in New Harmony and, and some of these other um, overnight experiments, um, it was about creating the, the perfect community of, of people, of workers. Um, and these were, in many ways, good places to live. They were good quality houses built with good materials, um, they were largely, you know, spacious. Um, they were modern. They had, um, you know, kitchens and all, uh, all the things that you needed. Um, locally, there was an understanding that, that um, it was a healthy place to live. Mortality rates here were half what they were in, the, in Liverpool generally. Um, it, you know, it was a good place to bring up a family. There were sports clubs and outdoor swimming pools and all kinds of things. Um, so in, in lots of ways, there were, were good things going on here. But it's quite interesting. Um, one of the interesting things about Lever um, was that he spoke a lot about what he wanted to do. So compared to some of the other um, philanthropists who 
had these experiments, Robert Owen did also speak a lot, um, but if you think about Saltaire, for example, um, in, near Bradford, um, Titus Salt said very little about what he was trying to achieve there. Um, William Hesketh Lever was, was very clear about his ambitions. Um, and so, for example, in 1898, he gave a speech about Port Sunlight, about his vision for Port Sunlight, um, drawing direct links between decent housing, moral responsibility, and acceptable social behaviour. He said, A child that knows nothing of God's earth, of green fields, of sparkling brooks, of breezy hill and springy heather, and whose mind is stored with none of the beauties of nature, but knows only the drunkenness prevalent in the hideous slum it is forced to live in, and whose walks abroad have never extended beyond the corner public house and the pawn shop, cannot be benefited by education. Such children grow up depraved and become a terror and a danger to the state, wealth destroyers instead of wealth producers. And I think there's, there's quite a lot of, of interesting things going on there, and, and similar um, senses come through for, from other of, of Lever's discussion around Port Sunlight. This idea that it's about wealth producing, what is good for business, and obviously he's trying to create the perfect commercial workforce. And if one of the workers proves in some way inadequate, not only do they lose their place at work, they lose their house. You know, their family is chucked out onto the street. So he has the ultimate power of control over, over their behaviour. And he takes it, I think, um, a step further as well by linking it to the state, by linking it to national interest. What he's doing here at Port Sunlight somehow uh, affects the, the national state of the country and, and the way in which workers are going to be seen as the basis <coughs> for this. And so what, whereas on one level what you have at Port Sunlight is, is visually something that appears to be about variety and, um, and uh, modernity and uh, idiosyncrasy, and all that's very clear when you kind of see it, actually starts to be based on something which is much more about conformity um, and uniformity. Uh, and, and as Michael was saying, about uh, levelling out difference and, and making a, a group of people work together in the way that you want them to. It's about scrutiny and it's about the personality uh, of, in this case, William Hesketh Lever, but this is repeated time and again in, in these village communities. It's about the, the one person or the one company that creates them um, and how they bind lives together in, in their own interests. And obviously by the time this was developing, which is the beginning of the 20th century, um, there, were, you know, there, there were very strong trades unions, there were, there were movements uh, in council housing, there were all kinds of things that gave people an alternative. This is not an early 19th century uh, industrial revolution thing. Uh, this is considerably later when people are starting to be offered alternatives. Um, and the secretary of the Bolton branch of the Engineers' Union uh, voiced a concern that, that, you know, started to become more and more prevalent. He said, no man of an independent turn of mind can breathe for long in the atmosphere of port sunlight. The profit-sharing system not only enslaves and degrades the workers, it tends to make them servile and sycophant. 
It lowers them to the level of machines, tending machines. Yesterday, I came to talk at this time um, about philanthropy. I don't know if any of, of you were also there. And what came out of it um, was about how messy philanthropy is, you know, the, the factors that drive it and the impulses behind it um, and some of the nuances of, of giving, whether it's of time or money. Um, and that, of course, is, is what's interesting about these villages, the, the fact that they're apparently giving out quite a simple single message, but when you start to look into it, it it's much more uh, ambivalent, much more am ambiguous. As a novelist, that's what interests me. Um, I, my last novel, Malford, was about what happens to one of these villages when it declines, when it gives way. Um, and, and Ben's work, you know, where's the, where's the messiness uh, in these kind of I what apparently are ideal setups? Um, so it starts off as the search for certainty and for a single worldview, and I think often in periods of great change. So um, it's interesting how many of the, these communities um, are built around uh, turns of the century, around you know, uh, great changes in, in industry, um, in response to political and social movements like, for instance, the arts and crafts, um, in order to apparently establish a single view. But actually, of course, there are about a multiplicity of factors. There are about all kinds of contexts. There are about impulses which draw um, on, from all different directions. And so the architectural evidence only partly conceals this. And when you get up close, when you start to examine it closely, what you see is the cracks beneath. And in the case of Port Sunlight, I would say, say what you, if you go around the back of the cottages um, in Port Sunlight what you see is lines of wee bins. And, and it's that kind of difference between the, the, what is presented at the front and the practical nature at the back, which is perhaps um, eloquent about the village as a whole. I'll leave you with one little anecdote. Um, the people of Port Sunlight, uh, or some of the people of Port Sunlight in the beginning of the 20th century, were so embarrassed about living there that they had their post sent to Bebbington up the road so that no one would know that they actually were part of this, this lever experiment. So now our final speaker, Benjamin Markovitz. Thanks. Tilt this up. I'm, I'm just a novelist, which means I don't really know anything about anything. Um, <laughs> So I thought what I would talk about is the appeal of utopias from a narrative point of view, and not just the appeal, but the sort of problems you run into. And whether this has any relation to what actual utopias are not, maybe I'll, I'll leave for you to decide. In the first place, I would say that the novel itself is kind of a utopian form, at least in the way that I practice it as a more or less middle-of-the-road conventional domestic realist. The sort of question we're asking is if the material struggles of existence have all been solved, what could you make of your life? Now, there's a way in which that's not utopian that I want to come back to in a minute. But 
you can see how from the outset the sort of question the novel is asking is how we should live. And that's the sort of question that the idea of utopia is addressing. My own novel that is the reason I've been invited here, and I'm going to go into it very briefly, is about a, an experimental community in, in Detroit. And while I was reading, while I was writing it, a couple books I read played a big role in what I was thinking about. One of them is Walden. Are there any Walden fans in the room? Do you know what it is? Thoreau's account of squatting on some land outside a lake outside Boston, building himself a hut and growing some stuff and living for a couple of years. It's a great book. I would love to do an edited version just because so much of it is deeply annoying. Um, and so much of it is wonderful. But the basic idea of Walden seems to me is this. What would you do with your life? What would your life be like if you didn't have to spend money on real estate? You're all in London right now. <laughs> I assume you have some sense of why that would be a pressing question. But he's asking himself, if I don't have to do a job to live where I live, what would I do? Now, the problem with Walden, from both the novelist and the utopian point of view, of course, is that there's space only for him in his hut. You can actually go see a replica hut. It looks like a very nice little room, but you don't want to have a family there. And what occurred to me about Detroit on the basis of the same sorts of articles you guys would have read in the English press, is that there were houses for $300, for $200, for $500. And what you had here was cheap real estate. And that if somebody swooped in and made it livable, you could do a kind of Walden at scale. Would any of you be tempted to move to such a Detroit? You get a house for three? You, you'd go now? <laughs> Tomorrow. Um, so another book I was reading while I was working on this novel is The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs, which is also wonderful and full of crackpot stuff, too, like the Upper West Side is never going to gentrify. You know? <laughs> That's a lost cause you can give up on the Upper West Side. Um, but her argument is about mixed use, basically, and that you want different kinds of people, and you want buildings in different states of repair, and you want people doing different things in neighborhoods. And... What she's after is somehow trying to freeze the wave of gentrification. The moment that she's interested in is the one in which the poor neighborhood becomes attractive to artists, entrepreneurs, whatever it is, the people who move in and make it hip and start coffee shops, but it hasn't turned into London where everything has become too expensive. Now, it's very hard to freeze waves, but what occurred to me is that since Jane Jacobs has been around, we have something called the Internet and that you could use a kind of Groupon method of gentrification to do it all at once. The problem with moving to Detroit on your own right now is parts of it can be scary. But if you do it with a bunch of people, then suddenly it looks more attractive. Um, it occurred to me, and this is the sort of big open goal that you shoot at when you're starting a novel, that by asking this question of who would move to Detroit and what would it look like when they moved there, I was in some way telling an allegory about the settling of America in the first place, that you take a bunch of disaffected middle-class people and you move them into a new country where the land is cheap and you displace, in the original case, the Native Americans who are already there and in Detroit's case, the urban African Americans who are part of the city as it is now. And that this would be an interesting thing for me to riff off. The problem... Let me start with the advantages of talking about utopia from a narrative form. 
one of the things I wanted to do in the book, it's a kind of novel that I like reading, is tell a story of a group of college buddies as they make their way through life. Any fans of The Group by Mary McCarthy? Another really good book. Brideshead Revisited is essentially that kind of book. But there's an artificiality to the setup, which is this. I'm now about to go to my 20-year college reunion, and the truth is those friendships don't matter that much. Some of you are probably in university. I hate to break it to you this way. (laughs) Other things will intervene, and there's an artificiality to the kind of novel that wants to tell you that these are the defining relationships of your life because other things are going to get in the way. And this is where it seemed to me that utopia could come in because it would give a reason for me to bring all these people together again. Now I want to say just a little something about the problems of utopia from a novelist's point of view. It's not quite clear what's supposed to happen in a utopia, apart from the ordinary things. Once you get to this utopia, what am I going to drive the plot with? People will fall in love. They'll fall out of love. They'll struggle with kids or not having kids. They'll fight with their friends. They'll try to beat their friends or whatever competitions that give them status. I mean, this is the stuff that novels are about. But if you set it in a utopia, you've switched the rich reality of the world, which gives people roots and makes our relationships interesting, for something artificial that doesn't have those roots. So having imagined this community, it was then very difficult for me to imagine what's supposed to happen next, apart from the ordinary stuff. And if I want to talk about the ordinary stuff, why don't I do it without the utopia? There are a few other problems with utopia from a narrative point of view. One of them is the God problem. When you're a novelist, you play providence. Things happen because you tell them to happen. I don't know if any of you play computer games. Uh, I know they've gotten a lot better since I played them when I was a kid. But one of the things it turns out, it seemed to me, to be very difficult for computer games to replicate is the sensation of gravity. You know those figures, no matter how articulated they are and how 3D they appear, they all seem to jump around as if it doesn't cost them anything to jump around. And in a similar way, when you're writing a book, you have to somehow recreate that idea of gravity, the weight it costs to do anything, the sort of frictions involved. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit why I think utopians go wrong, and it's not because utopia is impossible. It's just because, for various reasons, it's narratively convenient. If you're going to write a utopia and you make it work out great, all the readers will just suspect that you have over-egged the pudding that you've controlled events so that happiness comes out of it. It's very hard to persuade people that things are real unless they go wrong. I don't know if that's because people have seen too much reality or if it's just one of those narrative things that happens. The other thing that is difficult about utopia, and also part of its appeal, is that when writers write about utopia, and this was true of me too, part of what they're trying to do is comment on dissatisfactions with the world as it is. So one of the way I framed the novel to myself is I wanted to take an academy brat, I mean, somebody whose parents are academics, I was one of them, who went to a good college, who had a nice childhood, who ends up by the end of the book choosing to squat, live more or less homeless on the streets of Detroit. How could I get him from that A to that B without relying 
on the usual methods writers rely on to pr produce these transformations. I'm thinking of drug addiction, alcoholism, and gambling problems. How could I get him to decide, you know what, I want out of whatever this thing is, which is part of what drives the utopian ambition in the first place, right? You want out of whatever the world is that's around you. When I teach creative writing classes, I tend to overquote. I mean, the awful thing about teaching creative writing is you develop these mantras and you keep repeating them until you hate yourself. Um, so one of the mantras I borrowed from Graham Greene, who borrowed it from Browning, there's a line in Bishop Bluegrim's apology, my interests on the dangerous edge of things, the honest thief, the tender murderer, the superstitious atheist. And what you realize from that quote, and I think it is useful for writers, is that when you tell fiction about something, you're interested in certain kinds of stories. What is it that makes a story fictionable? The kind of thing better told in the lying narrative that fiction is. Now, a utopia that turns out happy would make a great documentary, but it's not quite the honest thief, the tender murderer, the superstitious atheist. There's something about the internal contradiction of what you're talking about that attracts the novelist. The happy utopia doesn't work for that. Does that mean that they can't have happy utopias? I mean, it sounds like from the accounts we've had so far from Michael and Jacqueline that they tend not to be that happy. But there's a strong drive when you write utopias as a novelist to make it unhappy for the reasons that I've suggested. Now, when this, a draft of this book, I mean, it's set in Detroit. You can, you can imagine it doesn't end particularly well. Um, I sent a draft of this book to my brother uh, about three or four years ago when it was still a manuscript. And his response at the time, the book ends in civil unrest in Detroit. I'm not going to give too much away by saying that. And my brother said to me, I don't think there are going to be race riots in America. <coughs> anymore. <laughs> now, the reason I, it's not that I was particularly prescient, but I didn't see anything. It's just that the narrative form itself pushes you to do certain things with subjects like utopia. And we should be suspicious of that pressure because it's not necessarily related to any insight. In this case, in some terrible way, it paid off for me. Um, now, the other thing I want to say about the use that novel, this is the last thing I'm going to say, I'm going to end with just a, a very brief reading, is that it sounds like from the beginning utopia was an idea with irony written into it, so long as it stayed in book form. There's something about the reality of utopias that tends to drain the irony from it. And as a novelist, what you're interested in, really from the beginning, is how you can say something and mean it and not mean it at the same time. Again, I think we should be suspicious of this tendency of the fiction writers. One of the interesting responses I've had to this book, especially in America, not so much here, is that if you contribute to conversations about race at the moment, one of the things you are supposed to be doing, I think, is advancing the cause. And people are suspicious of novels that don't in any way try to advance the cause, and mine doesn't. Now, that's partly on my, from, uh, from my side, the reason I wrote a book in which no solutions appeared for any of the race, economic, class problems in America right now is that because I've been taught that when you write le literature, one of the things you want to do is invest it with moral ambiguity. That's how you know it's literature. 
It seems, on the other hand, totally reasonable from a non-literary point of view to say that actually what's going on in America right now is not particularly morally ambiguous. When I stage police unrest, I want to make sure that the police brutalizing the black guy who's done nothing particularly wrong are presented as sympathetically as the black guy who's done nothing particularly wrong because that seems more interesting to me as a writer. But in fact, what's going on is not always very morally ambiguous. And that makes it hard for fiction to latch onto it, at least the kind of fiction that I wanted to write. In my attempt to ironize, and the title of my book is supposed to suggest something of that irony, I use Obama, who plays a small part in the book. And I'll just read one short passage, I think from which the title of this talk is partly, this panel is partly drawn. to suggest the way in which you can have an idea and also try to undermine it at the same time. There's a fundraiser in Detroit for the Democratic Michigan Democratic Party, and Obama shows up, and this is the speech he makes. Walking with a microphone, we tried to push our way a little closer, but the party, which had been loud and spread out, was now quiet and packed in. A few people at the back stood on tables to get a view, but Gloria, this is the narrator's date, Didn't want to do that, and in the end, I managed to find her a chair. I climbed up next to her for a moment, holding her waist, and then stepped down again. This is what Obama looked like from 50 paces, a young Arab businessman. His head looked small, and he seemed light on his feet. Walking with a microphone in hand, he said, we got in, I don't know, about 8 a.m. this morning, and the first thing I said was, take me to these neighborhoods, take me to these streets, so we drove off. 18 cars, one after the other. And by this point, it was about 9.30, and I knew we had got to the right place because there were guys working, building, wearing those hard hats and dirty day-glow jackets, climbing on roofs and digging foundations on Saturday morning, and the other half of the folks I saw were sitting in Joe Silver's cafe drinking lattes. People laughed, but at the time, I didn't hear all that, and only worked out from the Free Press website in the morning exactly what he said. Partly it was a problem with the acoustics, The office had been designed to cut out the flow of noise from one space to the next. There were also hecklers. Someone called out, the United States of Detroit, which didn't mean much to me then and doesn't now. But Obama stopped and started again. Now, I know there are folks here today who don't agree with everything I do, and I don't expect you to. But there are things we can agree on, that the American experiment ain't over yet. And that's not because we're sitting around on our butts waiting for the results to come in. The people rebuilding Detroit, and some of you are in this room right now, are still tinkering with it, still adapting it, still moving forward. You have come here from Albuquerque and Chicago, from Queens and from Cleveland and from San Diego. You have come from Mexico and Poland and Sudan and from right here in Detroit. You have come because you lost your job or you couldn't get a job, or you had to work three jobs just to put food on the table, because your health insurance ran out, or your mortgage was worth more than your home, because the school you sent your kids to couldn't afford to buy books, or because the part-time job you got in college turned out to be the best thing you could find after earning your degree. You have come because there was a voice in your head saying, You don't have to live like this. There's a better way to live. 
This voice has called people to America for over 400 years. It calls to us now, and so on. Eventually he said, but stick around, I'm just the warm-up act. Am I right in thinking we got the Renfields coming next? Thank you. Well, thank you all three for those wonderful talks. Now, we've got a good chunk of time for questions and discussion, so I'm going to start by just taking people individually, but if it turns out there's quite a lot of you, I might group the questions. Does someone want to indicate if they'd like to start our questioning off? Excellent. Yes. Oh, and could you just say who you are and where you're from, please? Uh, my name is George Gaskell. Uh, I have a question for you, Benjamin. Uh, Walden Two by B.F. Skinner. Uh -huh. Did you read that one? Because I mean, that's uh, another crazy account. But it's it, as I recall from many years ago reading it. It gets rid of free will. Everything is organized for the individuals by manipulating the environment. And it's really uh, very spooky. I think it was first sold as science fiction, and then it becomes a sort of treatise for communitarianism. I have a really very short answer to the question, which is no, I haven't read it. Um, so, so one of the things I, I meant to say but forgot to say, and this of course is about my earlier point that the novel is a utopian form except that the novel tends to be about family in some way and utopias often realize that the one thing that you want to attack is is family um, and that's where it linked into Walden for me because of course there's no room for it there I don't know if there is in the second book or not okay who would like to ask a question You've stunned our audience into silence. <laughs> the audience can... Oh, well, please, yeah. Um, hello, I'm Konrad Michukiewicz from uh, UCL Spartle. Um And I also have a question to Benjamin. Um, I visited Detroit a um, few months ago after years and years, and of course it changed a lot. But one of the things, if, if you talk about utop utopia or utopias, which I saw in, in, in Detroit was a number of different things happening there with the corporate America having this conference center and organizing these, uh, these, super, uh, these super important events with uh, corporate America's uh, CSR money fly, uh, flying around with architects buying buildings for nothing yeah. and then turning them into, into, into crazy things, but also lots of social enterprises uh, using the CSR funds to sort of experiment with the reality and to create something different in this post-disaster world. And I, I think this is something what brings together um, Detroit and, and, and New Orleans. Yeah. How, do you, how do you think about utopia in terms of, uh, in terms of forms of experimentation for the future? that arise from that, from, from, from that disaster reality. Could you think about utopia as a, as a way of experimentation of, of sort of little utopias, um, inventing things for the future? So, I mean, 
I don't know if I totally have understood your question, but part of it, I think, I've got one of the features, it seems, of all the utopias is that people are often making money out of them. And that seems to be true now from what you're saying in, in Detroit as well. The big business steps in and they buys up land and they hope in some way to get a return on it, whether it's because the workers are happier and so produce more or, or whatever it is. It's also true that, the, I mean, you're, I think you're totally right. I read a lot about this stuff when I was writing the book and have not since, for, I guess, obvious reasons. But there are a lot of utopian ideas floating around Detroit, turning it into farms, different kinds of cooperatives. And the tensions this produces with the people who actually live there, I think, are real. But I think it's also true that our demographic is moving there, at least they were for a while, the 21-year-olds, the 36-year-olds, not that I belong to that demographic anymore. Um, but I want you guys maybe could tell me, tell us more about the role of making money in the idea of utopia and whether it works or not. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I, I think we, what we would talk, although you didn't talk about New Lanark, which is a big disappointment, <laughs> um, but you did finger exactly on, on this yoking, I suppose, of utopianism to capital. And this, I think, odd things working in parallel, I think, in the 19th century. It's very interesting, I think, that um, the category of utopia with a small u as a literary genre, really only comes um, comes to be recognised, I think, from the 19th century onwards. Obviously, it's got a relationship with, with science fiction, per se, but it's not really used um, that way beforehand. There's a vast collection of fantastic voyages and journeys and satires from the 18th century that we would now call utopia. And it was it was never never called that. Utopia in the 18th century, one of the rare uses of the term, is actually um, about Ireland, and Ireland being, you know, kind of the, the island that is no, no island, that has no rights, is ruled from London. Um, so it's, it's got a very limited uh, topical application there. But in the 19th century, you get the idea, I think, that utopian socialism puts the, the imagined perfect place, the perfected place, the improved community um, first. The idea, you need, you need to dream it up. You need poets, you need artists, you need people to come up with ideas. You need visionaries. I think that's a very interesting relation to, to fiction. Um, you know, you come across it in all, all kinds of guises. The idea that you have a messianic figure... Uh, or you have a prophet, a king, and they have followers, disciples, subjects. And in the 19th century, you get followers who get ahead of the, who get ahead of um, of their prophets in a way. There are people found, you know, uh, when I mention Orpiston, Owen didn't find out about it until a couple of years later. And there's a Frenchman called uh, a lawyer called Etienne Cabet, who uh, he he wrote, an, I think, um, Utopia. His name I've completely forgotten, but I mentioned it only the other day in the newspaper. And um, he found out a couple of years um, after the. Um, 48 revolution in, pa- in Paris that somebody had gone ahead and started trying to set up this community in America he went out there, fell out with everyone straight away and had to go and try and set up his own community somewhere else but w- w- with this question of, of money and utopia what, what all these places that only lasted a couple of years have in common is that they completely lack the resources they must scrape things together and they can't deal with natural disasters and they can't deal with a bad crop and they can't deal with uh, anything else that goes horribly wrong, people drifting away, breaks um, in the community. Um, there's a good one uh, founded by, uh, I think, somebody co- uh, called Tuska uh, Uskiel, I think his name is. I can get the name wrong. But a Finnish um, a sort of visionary who decided he would buy um, a former banana plantation in Brazil 
got there, discovered it was completely infested, the land was utterly useless, but basically conned his followers out of their money and took them to court to try and hang on to onto it. It was clearly completely mad, shouldn't be running the place in the first place. You can tell that from what happened to him, which is that he died of starvation having decided he was just going to live on bananas. Um, so there's a question here, you know, maybe a suitability of who's in charge. The wily types, like Lord Lever, are the opposite end of the spectrum, aren't they? You can see that they, they have an eye to the main chance. Again, maybe interesting novelistic characters there, somebody who's, who's using the language of... I mean, that's fascinating, I think, that thing about Port Sunlight and how it looks so seductively kind of varied and um, pleasant places to sit. And the, I mean, the other thing about that, about places to sit and relax, I'll stop um, after that, is just the idea that there is leisure time and that technology and working together and cooperating are meant to provide you with a shorter working day. Are we doing that now? It doesn't seem to be the case with all the technology we have at our hands. And I, I would just add one other thing about the, the lever example um, in terms of making money, which I, I didn't talk about, but, but is, is talked about in the book, that, that some of you may know that, that lever was um, very heavily involved with work in the Belgian Congo um, and uh, where the conditions are, are notoriously, were notoriously appalling uh, under Leopold II for um, the people who, who lived there. And he set up a, a kind of an African port sunlight called Leverville, um, which in many ways echoed the intentions <coughs> that he had on the Wirral uh, to create this, this kind of perfect community. But of course, um, underpinning it was the terrible slavery and, and uh, absolutely appalling uh, working conditions and living conditions uh, that were being imposed on, on the Africans uh, who, who were already there. Um, and and the, the imperatives were entirely, you know, financial. He, the, the Lever brand made vast amounts of money for, from, you know, what they were doing in Africa. So I, I think, you know, that that's quite interesting as well. The, one quick story I heard, heard about Detroit um, years before this came out in the press was that they were using it to store aluminum because there was just lots of cheap real estate and they could manipulate the aluminum markets by just storing a lot and not putting it for sale. And the, the way I found out about this, I did a reading in Philadelphia, the worst reading I've ever been involved in. Um, it was actually an hour outside of Philadelphia. An old college buddy of mine drove me out to this suburb, which told me the manager of a bookstore in some strip mall in some nowheresville outside of, outside of Philadelphia. And the manager told me as I came in that we have the biggest bookstore um, east of Denver. And there were rows upon rows of seats lined up and one woman sitting there. I was a bit early, so I went away to get a beer until the crowds came. And when I came back, she was gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the manager said to me, oh, look, I don't think there's any reading there. And I thought, oh, what happened to that woman? And he said, I think she was just resting her feet. <laughs> but I learned about aluminum from this guy. Okay, yes, and, and wait for the mic and just say who you are, please. Um, my name's Dan Wise, I'm a lawyer. Um, I, I, it was more of an observation as well as a question. I, when I was listening to the Lord Lever um, example, a, a kind of modern-day similar um, s- situation is, is these Google campuses and, you know, the sort of Steve yeah. Jobs utopian vision. I, ju- I just wondered whether you sort of shared that you know, sort of notion of mirroring of the two, and, and and whether you had any any ideas of of of, of what 
would happen to a Google mm. or some, as, mm. as a result of what happened with Lord Lever. I, I absolutely agree that, that, that there is a mirroring and you can see the direct links. And, and actually, you know, the idea of, of things repeating themselves from... I mean, I, some of the examples I, I use in the book are, are sort of rural landowners, you know, um, Duke of Devonshire, for example, and some of them are industrialists. But what, wh- wherever their, their power comes from, this kind of repetition happens you know over centuries and I, I think you're right that potentially you know the, the Google is the next generation of these things I mean I don't I don't know enough about it to say you know how I how I think it would work but given what we've kind of discussed today you can't imagine that uh, it will be problem free um, I mean do you do you know a bit about about how well, that it was just genuinely a, yeah. a, an observation. I mean, I, the, the, one of the things I found interesting about the comparison was the fact that it's almost exclusively profit-generating, yeah. right? And you look at places like the Google, Google campus and people are sleeping in sleep pods. Um, yeah. You know, there were these restaurants which are grand ideas, you know, and it's meant to give everyone free food and free drink. And actually, the only reason they're there is so that people can live, sleep and work all under one yeah. camp. And the whole idea of it being a campus, you know, what happened to a nine-to-five job? Yeah. And who ultimately is the beneficiary yeah. of these things? You know, ultimately it's, yeah. it's the Steve Jobs or the... Absolutely. Whoever. And there's the same issue which arises historically. You know, what happens if you want to change your job? You, know, you put there's so much at risk. You lose your, your living place as well, your, your community. You know, it, it, everything becomes so complicated and, and intertwined. So I, yeah. think, I think you're right. And, and that actually, the technology market at the moment is so fascinating because it is pretty much dominated by so such such a small number of companies. So if you do lose your job from at Google, where do you where do you go? Where do you go? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yes, this gentleman with the scarf. My name is Akram Khan. I'm a particle physicist. I've got a very quick question, just leading on to this notion of technology. I mean, do you think technology can actually facilitate a utopian existence, or will, or will technology actually have some unforeseen consequence and morph the notion and definition and meanings of what utopian means to some extent? So how about the two interrelated? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm probably not the person to answer that. I'm a bit of a Luddite, really. <laughs> um, Michael well, like mentioned uh, technology as being uh, the potentiality, but yet also it could morph into something more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just shamelessly stealing there from, <laughs> in a Google, I hope you're an intellectual property lawyer, um, <laughs> in a Google way, I'm just actually really just, just trying to um, outline there something which is in the Utopia of Rules, the Dave Graeber book, where he talks about the... Um, the in, you know, R&D, research development, into new technologies, into, into medicines as well. It's a parallel, I think, with that, how they're meant to make our lives better in obviously parallel or co- comparable ways. Um, but the, the kind of technology which, is, which, which he focuses on is all the stuff that's actually quite useful for, for making sure we are at work, um, sort of monitoring what you're doing and CCTV and that kind of thing. It's obviously not all there is to it, but it's rather a pessimistic view of what technology can do for, for, for you. Um, even the idea of medicine that makes you, you know, um, happier is in this sense, rather just a sense of making sure you're, you're, you're happy with your lot, <laughs> you know, with the machine. Let's not have cure for cancer, but let's make sure we've got Prozac. Mm-hmm. Why not? I mean, I, I, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I would say from a historical perspective that, that all the examples that I looked at, or most of them, you know, 
are driven by technology. So the, the first example um, that I examine in, in part is, is the Richard Arkwright's Comfort Village and, and you know, absolutely driven by what was then brand new cutting edge state-of-the-art technology in, in the mill. And then um, there's a mining community um, up in the North Pennines in, in the early 19th century, which again was absolutely driven by you know, new uh, mining technology that meant they, they could put a place where there had never been a place before in very inhospitable landscapes. Um, and so there's absolutely, you know, the, the, it's, again, it's about repetition. It's about the pattern, you know, repeating itself. It doesn't probably matter what the technology is. Um, it, it does seem to be a driver for these types of places. Um, what were you going to oh, so One of the things I had to think about when I was trying to imagine this Detroit experiment is what are they going to do? How are they going to make money? And I don't think the technology has to be sinister. It's obviously now possible to make money if you don't live next to the factory. And it sounds like many of the experiments that you were talking about were partly put there because the factory was next door. In fact, I have a server farm that moves into Detroit to give a tech business um, cheap real estate because they're sick of San Francisco prices. But I think those of you who would be tempted to move to Detroit, I mean, if your work could be done from home and or you could send it in from wherever you were, would you like to live somewhere where all your buddies were too and you could have a big house instead of a small flat? Maybe, right? I don't know. The guy who wanted to move to Detroit, where are you? Yeah. <laughs> yes? I need to make more friends. You need to make more friends. <laughs> They'll be there. Fine. Just because people are making money off it doesn't mean it's necessarily sinister. I, mean, I suppose that's worth saying. But, but it's yeah. not the money. I mean, the, the worry is that uh, initially you, you've got technology which is there to facilitate. And then after a while, there is a transition that happens where the technology becomes more dominant and the master and it becomes it begins to create a, a universe, a world where you don't have ownership of it, it has ownership it's morphed and become in a sense the dominant char- uh, moral character that, that sounds right but maybe it was a very narrow slice of western civilization in which anybody felt they had ownership of anything and it was a very small group of people that felt that and so whether it's a reversion to some previous horrible state or in fact whether the blip was some period of life in which the middle class felt that they owned something, I don't know. It's but don't we feel that now with the technology? I mean, isn't that what technology is doing to us now? The fact that we do feel, you know, it's, it's a facilitator, it's important, it's critical, it's central. And at some point it's going to morph into something else. Yeah. The unforeseen consequences of technology is dangerous. That sounds right. I'm not going <laughs> to... Right. Sorry, would you want to contribute to that? Yeah. No, I'm just saying the technology is control. <laughs> yeah. And most of your exam- most of your examples of utopian have been of authoritarian situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and control and stasis. And it seems to me that the essence of humanity is um, questioning. And to me, a utopian society is one where you you question, you change, you have conflict, um, rather than the stasis. Does anyone want to pick up on that? So, I mean, it is a subset of utopian experiments that have been dealt with. I mean, actually, not just authoritarian ones, but sort of capitalist authoritarian yeah. ones. And, and, and so it's unsurprising, in a way, isn't it, that profit motives are the things that are corrupting them. But, sorry, I'm taking over your question, but, I mean, isn't it the case that there's a longer history of utopian experiments 
a far longer history and probably more utopian experiments were driven from below by people of a radical disposition retreating from the society or of a religiously radical position. There's probably many more of those. I mean, you talk about the United States and Bethlehem and so on. I think that's... So if you bring them in, do you still have the same conclusion? Well, I think that's true, but that just means authority resides somewhere else. I mean, in the case of a religious community, it's pretty obvious where where authority resides, isn't it? And that you need, you know, a voice for that authority on earth. Um, I think the, the relevant term... Sort of, you know, that the critical term for this is <coughs> utopia is because it's a slightly troublesome, baggy term. You know, it's it's got four or five de- definitions in the OED. The term the scholars tend to use, I think, is intentional communities, um, and I think that intentional is allows you that that bit of that space of thinking about from where authority derives, you know, and who's who's wielding it. Uh, any examples of, a, of a utopia that springs into place from democratically from out of the heads of more than a handful of well, people. Well, the kibbutz movement in Israel, I mean... It's but I, but again, I think that comes from, from something else. You know, I think it's not, it's not just out of nothing. There's, there's already an authority there, surely. I mean, I think that's what Moore was perhaps saying when he, he gives you a brief history of utopia. He says there is, there is a king. It's democratic now. It's meant to be very equal and perhaps too uniform. But, um, you know, that was set up by somebody in the first place. You kind of snipped it from the mainland umbilical cord just quickly I, I, I suppose this is partly what I was trying to address when I said that the novel itself was a utopian form the, the, the premise of the novel is of the kind of middle class novel is everything's fine why am I not happy <laughs> and you can't do anything about that problem and I suppose that's the sort of utopia that you're talking about right there's conflict and you continue to question and you go through it all and it's fine, but you don't need a utopia for that. And as soon as you have a utopia, you want to somehow erase those problems, and then you get the next level of problem. You get to death. Mm. <laughs> I'll come to the audience in a minute, but does anyone want to address the question of what the consequence of using these types of examples is? I mean, if, I mean, you, you've sort of been saying, well, there's no consequence because there's religious authority. But what about these radical socialist communes? I mean, they also descended into hopelessness but they weren't profit driven at any point I don't think so so are are the conclusions a function of the choice of examples that would be well I'm asking because Um, you've got most examples I I think um, in terms of of Mm. the examples for instance in this book to some extent yes because what I was specifically looking at here or wanting to look at was um, like you say a kind of subset um, where there was an intention to create a village, a built, you know, a built environment of architectural interest. Um, but I think I think the the point stands, like you say, that, that they still disintegrate one way or the other. I and mean, one of one of the other um, areas that, that I've done some work on that interests me is is John Ruskin. Um, and there were several. Um, Examples of communities that, that were inspired by Ruskin to go off and, and uh, live by themselves um, in a cooperative way uh, on the land in various what were then reasonably isolated places. And, and they lasted, well, largely they lasted no time at all. Um, they, they were apparently, you know, very, um, very kind of socialist in, in terms of of being um, non-hierarchical and 
but but they still had. I mean, to return to your point, Michael, you know, there was still a sense of the authority. You know, the the validity came from, in this case, you know, Ruskin, as kind of pseudo god um, who was was making it a valid life choice. So um, there, there are, you know, the elements do come up, at, whether they're big companies that are directing it or or individuals. It is this sense of of the vision, um, which is what you said, that I think is is so important in, in allowing people perhaps to feel that, that they can go off and try it. Yes. Now, so there were yes, this gentleman with the glasses up the back. Hi, um Will Eaves. Um I'm wondering whether we're getting to the point where what we're sort of maybe getting at is that utopias um, narrative or actual, um, even those that um, come about as a result of progressive socialist thinking can't really develop. They can only degrade. And is that something to do with the sort of confusion or misperception about historical time? That we'd like it to be cyclical and periodic and sort of self-sustaining, but in fact... Uh, it's an arrow and it's linear and you start off very young and you die and the same things happen to ideal communities I think that's a question for a novelist (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) they can't develop and that's why they fail I mean I most of what I had to say had to do not with why they actually failed, but why a novelist might want them to fail. Now, as it happens, I think there is a scale at which utopianism functions quite well, and that's the family. Not in all cases, but for many of us, the unit whose size makes possible the sorts of things that we want from a utopia is the family. And, of course, that develops and dies because the kids grow up and change and no longer want to come home for Christmas. Um, but they're still living there because the real estate's too expensive. <laughs> um, and actually the book I'm working on now is a kind of, I mean, this is too grand a way of putting it, but is a sort of account of the way family can insulate you from the big political historical problems um, and serve as a sort of island that allows you to separate yourself from that. I'm happy with the family as the utopia that we strive for. I think a lot of people would not be, um, and that has its own natural rhythm. I don't know if that's answered your question, but that's as good as I can do. So, yes, this gentleman here. Hi, I'm Michael Harvey. Um, I'm just sort of reflecting a bit on the the title there, and I'm just wondering whether it would be better... uh, phrases we do have to live like this um, in the sense that there is a, a pretty gloomy kind of trail of uh, of utopias here which all seem to fail and I think it's partially because they, some of them are very authoritarian, some of them in a sense like Port Sunlight you, you would have to question whether they are really utopias at all, but they're, they're actually set up in order to manipulate people into working more effectively and, and believing that, that they're happy. And I think there are a lot of utopias. Certainly I think the Google utopia is, is exactly like that. 
Um, but I still think there's something about utopia which won't go away, and that, that in a sense, is what's most positive about it. It is a, an attempt, um, however hard that may be, to, to live a, a very, very different kind of life, a life that's better than clearly the ones that surrounded it, uh, that one that is more uh, egalitarian, that uh, gives people uh, something that's much more fulfilling. Um, and that, in a way, is, is kind of, uh, you know, what's important about utopias. And, and if we discovered that, of course, we wouldn't be talking about utopia. If we had some really strong examples, um, we would just, we would, you know, we would have the secret there and, and, and we would actually be living it. But the fact that we haven't got there yet uh, doesn't seem to be any reason for, for, for giving up on it. And if we look at kind of what's facing us in the 21st century, uh, there are so many kind of threats to even what we will take to be as ordinary kind of life at the moment that perhaps we need utopia more than ever. And perhaps that's what will force us actually to, to, to achieve it, the kind of threats that are around. I would say there's a danger in making it too grand and the idea of utopia is so grand and metaphysical that it's never particularly approachable. And I was struck when I was working on this book how conventional I and my friends have been in our life choices when we had enough privilege to cushion us to making more experimental choices. My parents weren't particularly hippie-ish, but some people were. And we've all done more or less entirely conventional... I mean, I don't want to go back to the family, but you know, all the decisions we've made... Um, I'm more identifiable by my class and type than I've ever been in my life before. And I wonder if that's a generational thing, whether something happened in the 60s that made people more willing to try new ideas, and recently they've been less willing, or at least when I was making these decisions, and whether some of you in this room who are in the process of making these decisions will be more or less willing to, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can answer that. So, but there are practical cho- choices that you can make. You can live in communes, you can divvy up money in different ways, you can move out of London. I mean, um, it shouldn't be so grand that it seems unapproachable, the idea of it. Yes. Uh, the lady in the red. Oops. Hi, I'm Mira. Um, I just wanted to ask or think a bit about the, the naming because I feel like when we talk about failing of utopias, I feel like we always talk about the utopias who failed, uh, the ones that failed, like the examples that you have, but maybe all the stuff that is working right now and that is existing were utopias ones as well, right? So democracy or digital-based economy or whatever. If they would have failed, it would be a crazy person sitting somewhere and selling, saying it could be a funny idea when all our economy would run on computers and everybody would laugh at them and say, that's a utopia, right? So is it maybe the whole point of this narrative that you were also saying that we only talk about utopias when there are this negative outcome-focused utopias. I mean, obviously, there's this always the difference between dystopia and utopia as well. So maybe there's just a lot of confusion about the, the wording, and sometimes we're living already in utopias, and we should be more happy about the realization options of utopias because we're living in them already. I'm not sure. Yes. Who would like to take that question up? That sounds perfectly fair to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think um, that ties in with the previous point, didn't it, about um, 
maybe the, the, there is something very important about utopian kind of um, urge, as it, as it were, that without this desire to improve on things as there are, without people who are brave enough to do that, where would we be and would we have progress at all? And that's why I think, I, I think it's very interesting to mention this point about irony disappearing some point along the line as utopia kind of evolved into what it is now, as we use the word in so many different ways now. Um, Moore's book isn't a straight manifesto, as I said, but nor is it a straight satire on the ideas that are in the book. As a good Catholic, I doubt he thought euthanasia was a really good idea. For example, or divorce was a really good idea, or married priests. But they're in the book, but there are a lot of other ideas that probably would have appealed to him. I mean, he, he sort of seems to thought very seriously about a religious life rather than becoming a lawyer. Um, interesting choice. And, uh, and that's definitely, you know, in the book, this idea of communal living, which we've heard and come back to. Um, it's really interesting that we come around, the, you know, the idea of breaking the family unit, which, as Benjamin says, is actually really quite, quite a strong and important one. All these things that seem to be slightly against that, but maybe in, like you're saying, productive ways. We need to think slightly differently. And then there's a recently published book called On, on Pretentiousness, which I think is about artistic... You know, pretensions, and it's, I, as far as I understand, it's kind of defence of that idea. You need to try things. Don't be afraid to be called pretentious. Somebody's got to try it, and maybe this falls into that that category. Any other comments on that last question? Um, I think we're coming close to the end, but the, there's a gentleman with glasses up the back. If you um, would like to just contribute. Hello, I'm Tuk. I'm in, in between jobs at SOAS and, and UCL, so kind of in a semi-utopian space, I, I suppose. But I uh, just wanted to mention one example from London called uh, Escape the City. So this is a social enterprise that kind of invites people who are working for large corporates to, to leave that sort of dystopian life if, if they don't like it and, and come and join this intermediary that gives them the courage to move on to a different sort of life. So I, I find that kind of resonates with some of your themes and, and also this desire for utopian sort of life. And it also points to one interesting uh, element that I must mention as a sociologist, which, which is that perhaps utopias are being individualized because these people are given information on various alternative jobs uh, you know, uh, or trips uh, and, and voluntary work in Africa, for instance, around the world. Um, that are sort of individual adventures. So they may, may join certain communities or groups, but in, in a way what I see in that is that uh, this utopia is being individualized. Thank you. Anyone like to respond? Do you have any final words? <laughs> one, maybe last quick thought, not particularly in answer to that question, but the previous one is that one of, I mean, another form in which utopia seems to work very well, and there's a reason people talk about the Google campus, is the university. It's a place where you sit around with people and think, and you have dining hall food, and the accommodation may not be great, but you're separated from your family. I mean, it's, it, in many ways, it resembles what the idea of the utopia is, um, and we're here. Okay, well, um, listen, I, I think we've, we've heard some very interesting arguments here. Um, and w one of the things that strikes me listening to you all is that there's an emphasis on how deeply ambiguous these utopian experiments are. And that's, in a way, a kind of commonplace, I think, of our political sensibility at the time. Um, it's, it's interesting, though, because the, last, the, the questioner in, in red here made a point which I think was well worth making, which was to, in a sense, suggest that utopian ideas, at any rate, if not the attempt to institutionalise the experiments, are somehow essential. 
because they give a kind of compass and a direction of travel, without which we just end up sitting, not knowing which way to travel. So I guess I would leave you all with one thought, which is, do we have too much utopia in the present or too little? There may have been periods where there was too much, but maybe now we're in a period of too little. But I'll leave you to think about that. Can you just end by joining me in thanking our three speakers? (laughs) 